0: This one comes from Talking Bird, which is the Lecture feed from Mockingbird Ministries, a fantastic outfit. And if you don't know about it, you definitely should go look them up. It's mbird.com. A wonderful ministry with lots of people drawn from lots of churches who get together because when you are free of ecclesiastical politics, you actually can talk about the gospel. They have lots of great stuff on their website, they have a gorgeous magazine, they have a bunch of podcasts. Uh, their main one is called The Mocking Cast, also highly recommend that one. Anyway, this one uh, episode comes to you from Talking Bird, which has all of the lectures and talks and breakout sessions that were delivered at the Mockingbird Annual Conference. Uh, 15th Annual took place in April 2023. I was one of the speakers there, had a great time, wonderful people, and had a lot of fun giving this talk on Martin Luther's Guide to Becoming a Saint in Five Easy Steps. Good morning! My talk today is Martin Luther's Guide to Becoming a Saint in Five Easy Steps. And it is great to be here and see so many people keen on becoming saints. Martin Luther would be pleased and proud. Apologies that he could not be here with us today. I am standing in as his humble deputy. But everything I will convey to you comes right from the horse's mouth, so to speak. For our dear Reformer was just as committed to sanctification as to justification. Now, some of you may be a little shocked to hear that, maybe feeling a little betrayed, or perhaps you think I'm going to pull a little bait and switch and say, well, actually justification is sanctification, and then accordingly tread the beloved path of baptism, faith, and repentance. Please do rest assured that nothing I say to you today stands apart from the mighty fortress of justification by faith alone. It is the article on which Luther's doctrine of sanctification also stands and falls. But I have to tell you, even for Luther, justification and sanctification are not the same thing. And it did take Luther some time in his career to fully parse out the difference. As a matter of fact, it wasn't really until the last ten years of his life that Luther unearthed the nature of true holiness through his study of the lives Of the patriarchs and matriarchs of Genesis. It turns out those ancient Jews knew just as much and quite possibly more than the saints of the New Testament and the subsequent church about what it means to live in and with God. So Luther gleaned from them, and I have gleaned from Luther what it takes to become a saint, and it turns out. Five easy steps is all it takes. So here we go. Step one, be a body. If you qualify, please raise your hand. Okay, very good, very good. Probably the oldest religious argument in history is whether the body can be holy. Or, to put it a little more precisely, whether the body can be holy and still function recognizably as a body. You'd think that a faith founded on the bodily resurrection of a scourged and crucified man would be immune to the contempt of the body. But even we Christians continually lose this fight. Popularly, it is still assumed that the real me is the immortal soul that will flutter up to heaven after shucking off this mortal coil. Luther will have none of this nonsense. Potential saints don't just have bodies, they are bodies but luther recognizes that maybe some of our problem in communicating the sanctifiability of the body has something to do with the nature of the new testament writings themselves for they are chiefly about non-representative figures at the moment of cosmic kairos in other words not the usual state of affairs, and not all that helpful to those of us who live outside the Kairos moment. Christ and John the Baptist are beyond comparison, Luther admits, and so were the apostles. But, he points out, all these had a short span of life. Abraham, however, lived for a long time and did many wonderful deeds besides. Therefore, he, Abraham, is rightly considered the chief of all the saints. Luther is basically saying, try making it into your hundreds still holy, and then we can talk sainthood. So then, Luther infers, we need stories of long-lived saints who pass through the whole normal course of human life. And Genesis is replete with such stories. Stories that many pious and ethereal interpreters have judged irrelevant, unworthy, and downright undignified in Holy Scripture. Because there's a lot about cattle, breeding goats, planting crops, getting from here to there and back again. What is this, The Hobbit? Marrying and giving in marriage, conceiving and bearing children, both good and bad ways to go about doing that. Meals are eaten. Wine is drunk. Households are managed. I do not always pray, Luther admits. Nor do I always meditate on the law of the Lord, and struggle continually with sin, death, and the devil. But I put on my clothes, I sleep, I play with the children. Now you may be a good pupil of a Reformation doctrine and think, Ooh, 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 she's gearing up to Luther's doctrine of vocation. I know this one. The everyday business of life is blessed. Yes, fair enough, but I think we tend to over inflate the notion of vocation nowadays. We demand meaningful work that makes the world a better place. That is not the point Luther is pursuing here. It's still too religious in the human sense of the word. Luther explains. One can ask why the Holy Spirit mentions such trifling, childish, slavish, womanish, worldly, and carnal things concerning the most saintly people who have very clear promises, things they have in common with any other godless person. Why does the Spirit not write about other things things that are weightier and more sublime. For of what importance is the fact that they had to sweat while occupying themselves with these sordid household affairs? I reply, let the wicked man be removed, lest he see the glory of God. God hides his saints under such masks and carnal matters in order that nothing may seem more abject than they. So to put it another way, ordinary life is the holy life in and of God. Eating, drinking, going to the bathroom, the sweat and blood of child making and child bearing, building a shelter, tending animals, all this is to be a body to the glory of God. Luther's doctrine of sanctification is first and foremost a vindication of ordinary bodily life. So he comments, even though these works do not have the appearance of sanctity, one remains in good standing when one does these things. God did not consider it beneath his dignity to have these seemingly unimportant and paltry works recorded in his book. Now it is important to recognize that Luther is not romanticizing bodily life or offering a kind of saccharine blessing on obedience to our physical needs and impulses. Bodily life is sinful life because human life is sinful life. It is not innocent in and of itself. Bodily life is good, though, because God made it and God covers it with righteousness. So Luther concludes, although marriage is an unclean kind of life because the copulation of the man and the woman cannot take place without carnal uncleanness, tending cattle is a filthy business. And the life of the government and of subjects is highly impure and abounds in vices. Nevertheless, God has richly honored all this and has ordained it in his word. And if you hold fast to the word, you have already been cleansed of all your uncleanness. And that brings us to step two. So, step two is have strong emotions. Who here has got strong emotions? Fantastic! 100% of our gathering today has already made it to step two of becoming a saint. What a promising bunch you all are. So, the saint's life has a, saint's bodily life has a complement in Luther's way of thinking, which is the saint's emotional life. Every bit as much as it is a vindication of bodily life, Luther's teaching on sainthood is a vindication of emotional life. Sanctification does not destroy human emotions any more than it destroys human bodies. Holiness, bear with me here, okay? Holiness is not emotionlessness. The Holy Spirit, Luther asserts, does not make tree trunks and irrational human beings out of people when he pours faith into them. No, he preserves and increases what good there is in nature. He preserves and increases fatherly affections, filial affections, and so on. If anything, Luther argues, where grace abounds, emotions abound too. Affections are intense and impassioned. The saints are unsettled and carried away by their affections, Luther says. Not blocks of wood devoid of feeling, but they are human beings, and the emotions and affections implanted in human nature are present in saints to a higher degree than they are in others. For the saintlier one is, And the more intimately one knows God, the more one understands creatures and is attached to them. So Abraham, for example, overflowed with inexpressible groans, sighs, sobs, and fatherly tears. Luther makes a huge deal out of the passing remark in Genesis 35.8 that Rebecca's nurse Deborah died and was buried under an oak below Bethel, to which Jacob gave a special name. Luther praises Jacob's tears over the loss of this saintly woman. And Joseph is moved with compassion in his bowels for his rotten, treacherous brothers. The Holy Spirit loves the tenderhearted, Luther tells us. And even the emotion of anger has its right place rightly used, as Jesus shows us. As with the body, this is not to romanticize the impulsive or the melodramatic or the hysterical. Since these emotions have been corrupted by original sin, Luther sagely observes, one must then see to it that they are corrected. In human society, we learn to curb and subdue the sins of lust, wrath, and similar emotions And in this way, to use wrath and sexual desire in the proper manner, so that pride, ambition, hatred, lust, etc. are purged out. But this cannot be done, Luther says, without great toil and grief. Therefore, one sees in the saints not only that human nature is created this way with its emotions, which the Holy Spirit does not extinguish, but one also sees weakness and corruption against which they fight constantly, like men standing in readiness for battle. They take pains to slay their depraved emotions, but not to slay their emotions full stop. See how great the power of nature is, Luther says. The better and purer it is, the more excellent and ardent are its natural affections. Nor do grace and the Holy Spirit remove or corrupt it, but the Holy Spirit heals it and restores it to a healthy state when it has been corrupted. So many people think that spirituality means never to have a painful emotion again to enjoy eternal sunshine in a spotless mind. Luther gives you fair warning. The deeper you go into the godly life, the deeper you will feel things. Stoic detachment, this is not. Now, I suspect that this conference does not tend to attract the spiritually aspirational. But if there are any lurkers out there, I bet you're getting a trifle frustrated at this point. It's too easy. Be a body, have strong emotions. Isn't that just another way of saying, be a human being? Yes. And personally, as I look at our world today, I think we all need a lot more reminders of what it is to be human, and a lot more practice at being human. However, point taken, we are aiming at sainthood here, not at mere humanity. And so, for similar reasons, the covertly ambitious among you might be grumbling that, so far, Nothing distinguishes a Christian saint from an ethical secularist or a devotee of another religion. And Luther concedes the point happily. The saints are not always impelled by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, he says. They have their desires and affections, just like anyone else. Luther actually remarks that the most surprising thing about the saints of Genesis is that in the kind of life involving the management of a household, they had absolutely no unusual or special semblance of saintliness. Now, if saintliness were defined from below, from a human perspective, it would be very hard to draw that line. And probably that's all to the good for the sake of our mutual coexistence in the world. But of course, Luther's intention has never been to define sainthood behaviorally. So far, with his blessing on the body and the emotions, Luther has simply excluded the notion that sainthood cannot coexist with, for example, being a farmer, making love to one's spouse, wrangling a defiant toddler or a sullen teenager, having a nice breakfast or grieving over a dead parent. So what sets the saint apart then? Here's what Luther tells us. In all ages, God has done great things and wonderful works through his saints. These works are impressive and strike the eye. But for us who teach as well as learn the Holy Scriptures, God's own utterance must be especially resplendent. This above all adorns the legends of the saints and distinguishes them from the accounts of the heathen. They are called sacred accounts because the word of God shines in them. So in short, step three, a saint is someone to whom the word of God has been addressed. Now this might sound pretty discouraging for the would-be saints of today. Easy for them, you might think, way back in Ur of the Chaldeans, or way up on Mount Moriah. God showed up in fire and cloud, or sent an angel, or spoke in a great big Orson Welles kind of voice from the sky. I could be a saint too if God did that for me. But. Here's where Luther catches us off guard, again, always one step ahead of us. To be sure, there is something unique and irreplaceable about the scriptural accounts of encounters with God that test and form everything we say about God. But get ready for this. Luther actually rejects the notion of the earthquake and lightning theophany. He rejects the big scary voice from the clouds. Luther historicizes the word of God by placing it on human lips. Once humans have been expelled from the garden of Eden, Luther says they hear God's word from each other only. Astonishingly enough, in Luther takes every instance in Genesis of, Thus saith the Lord, and attributes it to a human being as a medium or relay. Adam is the first preacher of the church. He is the one to confront Cain over Abel's murder. When Adam returns to the earth from which he came, Noah's son Shem takes up the torch. Melchizedek is the one to speak the word of God to Abram, and on it goes. So What is the effect of Luther's historicizing of the word of God? For our purposes, it's that the saints of the Old Testament are not in a chronologically privileged position over against us. They don't have some advantage we lack, as if we were secret dispensationalists who had to resign ourselves to God's permanent silence. What Luther is saying is that God has always spoken through preachers. He did then, he does now. Preachers ordained and lay alike learn to recognize the word of God through the written scripture which they receive from their forebears and wrestle with and fight against and defer to. Then they speak this word to the people they live among. You are the man, nor do I condemn you, go forth and sin no more. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Take and eat, this is my body. Take and drink, this is my blood. Who here has heard such words of God addressed to them? Congratulations! You have reached step 3. You are 60% of the way to becoming a saint. Okay, take a deep breath. Ready? Step 4. Sin. This is not a noun. This is an imperative verb. To qualify as a saint, you'd better sin. Now, I won't require you to raise your hand for this one, though not on account of the sinners out there, but for the sake of the non-sinners, I don't want to force you into exposing your perfection in front of this crowd. It could get ugly. Let's get back to the saints of Genesis. Abraham lies about his wife twice. Jacob deceives. Joseph brags. Not attractive qualities in any of them. On behavioral grounds, they are surely disqualified as saints. And Luther agrees wholeheartedly. But then his concept of sainthood never depended on human perfection. In fact, a key feature of his teaching on sanctification is his stress on the sins of the saints. Even the greatest saints sometimes fall, Luther insists. And just as important, the sins of the saints are not to be excused as if somehow being a saint got you off the hook for your wickedness. Saints are humans. Humans are sinners. Ergo, saints are sinners. But to the saints, God has spoken, and this overrides their disqualification on account of sin. In fact, Luther regards the troubles, weaknesses, and sins of the saints as a gift to us now, though in all fairness, probably not to the people of the re- on the receiving end of those sins back then. Sinless saints are of no use to us, except as impossible ideals. And impossible ideals might even license bad behavior since the ideal is unattainable. But seeing the forgiveness and restoration of sinning saints encourages us. The intention of the Holy Spirit is familiar from our teaching, Luther says. He wanted the godly, who know their weakness and for this reason are disheartened, to take comfort in the offense that comes from the account of the lapses among the holiest and most perfect patriarchs. Those who excuse the patriarchs dispense of their own accord with the comfort that the Holy Spirit considered necessary for the churches, namely, that even the greatest saints sometimes fall. So now we've made our way through steps 1-4. to Be a body, have strong emotions, hear the word of God, sin. My guess is that you're all still in the running. My guess is that you've also become deeply suspicious of where I'm going. It can't be this easy. Here comes the upsell. God has brought me this far, but from this point onward, it's going to be up to me. You might even be generating a saint's to-do list in your head. Pray every day, read the Bible, become a servant leader, start a small group or a ministry of mercy, engage in sacrificial service to your neighbors, stop this, add that, or just believe harder and better and more all the time. Because implicitly, that's what we all think sanctification is, right? Justification is the good part of the deal the gracious gift of Christ's own righteousness to us while we were still sinners. But now that we have that righteousness, we are obligated to do something with it. God steps back and expects us to step up. Oh, ye of little faith, did you really think Luther was going to let you down at the end? Think back on all four steps so far. None of them was anything you had a say in. You did not choose to be a body. You did not ask for your strong emotions. You didn't request the word of God to come crashing into your life. And honestly, you didn't even ask to sin. So step five is no different from the first four. It is not something that you choose and not something you are expected to perform. Like the other four steps, it is simply something that is laid upon you. Here is the last step to becoming a saint. You endure God. You know, at first blush, it might feel like a huge relief not to be in charge of the final stage of your sanctification. But let's admit it that if it was, at least you'd have some say in the matter. You'd have some control. It would be your own business. But Luther sees it exactly the opposite. Your sanctification is the result of God getting down and dirty and messing around in your life. This is not a comfortable thing. Luther gives it an uncomfortable name. He calls it the game God plays with his saints. He puts it like this. Your life is a game played by God that all you do and suffer is pleasing to him, provided that it is done in faith and that, finally, death itself is precious in the sight of the Lord. For we see that God took delight in the lives and all the actions of the patriarchs. How does this game unfold? Luther again. God places his own under the cross, and although he delays their deliverance, nevertheless, in the end, he Gloriously snatches them out of their dangers and makes them victors, but only after they have first been greatly vexed and have been wearied to despair by sundry conflicts. To be aware of this divine procedure with which God rules us is profitable and necessary. Thus, we learn to show patience in adversity, to trust in God's goodness, and to hope for salvation, but in prosperity to humble ourselves and give the glory to God. For it is God's custom to do both, to bring down to hell and to bring back, to afflict and to comfort, to kill and to make alive. This is the game, with its continual changes, that God plays with his saints. Note well, this is not because God is arbitrary or sadistic. It is God's will that precautions be taken against both courses, Luther explains, that we should not be proud, according to the flesh, nor despair, according to the spirit. But we should proceed by the middle way between sorrow and joy, between boasting and disgrace. The reason this, uh, for this so-called game is because God is not a principle or a theory or a formula to be mastered any more than we are. God is personal. God is three persons interacting with us personally in all the complex ways that personal relationships unfold. And all the more so when the relationship is between the creating Almighty Father who sends forth his Son and his Spirit, and us, mortal sinners. You cannot see my face, but you will see my back, God tells Moses. And Hagar says of God, I have seen the back of him who sees me. For Luther, these two examples are not merely metaphors, but they reveal the very substance of how the saints interact with God. To be a saint is to suffer, but first and foremost, to suffer God. So Luther concludes, it is more useful for us to be driven and led by God than to act, understand foresee, and arrange things according to our plans. Our suffering is the saintliest life of all. Thus, therefore, in one moment, the saints have been driven headlong from heaven into hell, from life into death. Okay, who's excited about becoming a saint? That's what I thought it's actually probably a pretty good indication that if you want to be a saint or are trying to become a saint, you are headed in the opposite direction at the speed of light. So Luther urges you, stop trying to become a saint. If anything, pay attention and take comfort from the stories of saints' past because they will help you Endure God as God goes about the business of making you into a saint. For if the biblical stories show us anything, it's that troubles and weakness and sin are not alien to the experience of holiness, but lie right smack dab in the middle of it. We see the game that God played with those saints of old, and thereby gain the hopeful endurance we need in the game God is playing with us saints in the making. And after all, we're all in this game together. Team saints is a pretty big one. I'm glad to have all of you saints in this game with me. Thank you.